Welcome back, everybody. It's time for another episode of Building a Better Story World. It's me, Steel Philippec, here once more to give you the tools, tips, and tricks that will help you craft engaging narrative universes for fans, regardless of platform or medium. I've worked on all of them. Film, television, video games, comic books, literature, spatial design, branding, marketing, audio dramas, and more. Whatever realm of creation spurs you to composition, it doesn't matter. All that matters is that you're willing to create, so kick up your feet and let's get to it. For the past few episodes, we've been exploring specific ways to help showcase the details of your story world. First, we discussed exposition with the help of a private eye and a cartoon rabbit. We're supposed to be hiding. What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? You're the only person in the theater that isn't laughing. Is there nothing that can permeate your impervious puss? Then we talked about juxtaposition, thanks to children of men. The world was stunned today by the death of Diego Ricardo, the youngest person on the planet. Now we're on to a big one. One of the more requested episodes and elements with which creators approach me for this podcast and in real life. It is a ubiquitous yet often misunderstood form of writing, and it is critical to most forms of dramatic writing. I'm speaking about speaking, which is to say the topic we're discussing today is dialogue. When I teach any form of writing, one of the biggest questions I get is, how can I write better dialogue? It makes sense. Language is part of the human condition. It is what connects us with each other, and it's what connects dramatic art with an audience. Yes, there are innumerable examples of art that doesn't require conversation. Yet, people are continuously drawn to the act of talking, even when it's in a silent medium like literature or sequential art. While you can find thousands of books, essays, and YouTube videos on the subject, I want to make one recommendation. Don't try to write realistic dialogue. Be witty. Be smart. Be shocking. But don't try to be realistic. Actual conversation between human beings is kind of boring. If you don't believe me, take your phone and surreptitiously record a conversation that you and a friend or a loved one have over a meal. Don't let them know that you're recording and don't disseminate. I'm not asking you to be a wacko. Do take a good 10-minute stretch and transcribe every word, utterance, throat clearing, and everything else that is spoken. Unless you're in a heated debate, you'll find that it's kind of blah. That's fine. That's just normal. It's why we view our own conversations as interesting and others as banal. We're interested in our own lives in the moment. When other people talk about their days or their dramas, it's a quick trip to Snoozeville. The difference is that we, as creators, strive to find realism in dialogue when heightened realism is the reason that people tune in or turn the page. We don't expect an everyday OkCupid first date to match the intensity of romance found in Brokeback Mountain. I wish I knew how to quit you. We don't expect the conflict of a day at the job to match the intensity of Glengarry Glen Ross. Put that coffee down. Coffee's for closers only. We don't expect to walk into Target and see people fighting with laser swords while dealing with father-son issues. The Force is with you, young Skywalker. But you are not a Jedi yet. Yet for some reason, we do expect human beings and media to speak in a way that is familiar to us. Kinda. Really though, creators and audiences want dialogue that feels real. Kevin Smith, Diablo Cody, August Wilson, and Nora Ephron are considered masters of conversation. Yet if you read their dialogue aloud by yourself, you'll realize that each of them is a master of wit. Their lines are conflict-ridden, daring, engaging, smart, defiant. We hang on to their every word because each word is important. I can only speak for myself, but I'd hazard to say that maybe, maybe, 10% of my daily utterances have any value to them whatsoever. Yet good dialogue always has something to share. That's the nature of art, as relayed by Alfred Hitchcock. Drama is life with all the dull bits cut out. So, 
let's cut out the dull bits and focus on dialogue that works with three broad categories. Subtext. Methodology. Dramatic irony. We're coming at this from a story world perspective, so let's start with that first bit, subtext. It literally means below the language, that which is unspoken, between the lines. In other words, what you don't say or what is implied is just as important to your story world as what is said. As a general rule of thumb, all lines of dialogue should be doing at least two things at any given time. What do I mean? Here are some examples of what a spoken line can do. Relay information. This operation is under military jurisdiction, and Hicks is next in chain of command. My right, Corporal? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Convey characterization. Look, Ripley, yes. this is a multi-million dollar installation, okay? He can't make that kind of decision. He's just a grunt. Convey humor. No offense. None taken. Relay emotion. Hey, maybe you haven't been keeping up on current events, but we just got our asses kicked, pal. Detailed dramatic theme. Clearly an important species we're dealing with, and I don't think that you or I or anybody has the right to arbitrarily exterminate them. Come on. Yeah, watch us. Juxtapose word with action, transition from one scene to the next, and many, many, many others. You'll note that the best dialogue does a lot of this, but you don't need to hit every beat with every moment on every page of your work. Just two. There's something your character is overtly saying, and something that's a little more subtextual. To help us understand what that means from a story world perspective, let's take a great monologue from Boardwalk Empire. In it, Chalky White, a racketeer and unofficial leader of the black community in Atlantic City during Prohibition, has brought in a leader of the local Ku Klux Klan to intimidate and torture him to give up information about a race-related murder. Chalky doesn't state that outright, of course. Instead, he opens with a monologue about his past. I was born in Elgin, Texas. My daddy taught himself to carpenter trade, doing for the black folk there. I tell you, anything that man put his hand to, table, chair, wedding chest, he make that wood sing. Monologues can be boring because they only involve one character, but they are easily elevated by bringing in a second character that reacts to them, particularly when there is some great juxtaposition thrown in as well. This scene is an excellent example. We have Chalky White, a powerful black man in a time in America in which most black men didn't have power, sitting opposite a leader of the Ku Klux Klan. Now one day, a man, he a white man, he said to my daddy, I hears you the finest carpenter in Elgin. My daddy tell him, well, I can't say one way or the other, but uh, I knows a bit about some. Automatically, there is conflict. These two people don't like each other, and the tension is raised because Chalky wants to talk about his past rather than the situation at hand, creating anxiety and tension. So Mr. T.O. Purcell take my daddy to this house he was building. Biggest house in town. They walk in there and say, this here gonna be the library. What you think about that? My daddy say, well, I think you need some bookcases. All Chalky is doing is repeating information. But is he really? Actually, he's doing multiple things here. He's informing us about his personal history, which expands the scope of the world, which highlights the differences between races, which at first is hinted at, but not stated outright. Take my, my daddy worked there. And when he finished, <laughs> bring me around. Uh, Mr. Purcell, this here my boy. I'd like to show him what I've done. Well, come on in through the front door, just like that. 
and only later is revealed to be the critical bit of information in this scene. About a month later, another man come round. I seen what you did for T.O. Can't let that old dog top me. You come around my house and I'll show you what I need. My daddy go with him to the edge of town. With nothing there but six white men. Twelve foot of rope and the pepper tree they hung him from. Which Chalky juxtaposes with his own intent when he shows the clan member his father's carpentry tools. These here my daddy tools. What are you going to do with them? Well, I ain't building no bookcase. So what is Chalky doing here in this scene? Let's take a look. He's giving a bit of his family history. He's intimidating the person sitting across from him. He's making a political statement to his target. My father played by the rules and was murdered. Now I'm outside the rules and can murder you pretty much with impunity, like your forefathers did to mine. He's giving the audience a bit of social commentary. If you destroy the noble, only the ignoble will remain. Among much else, but the point is in the multiplicity. Chalky is not just relaying a bit of information. He's saying multiple things simultaneously. That, more than anything else, is the key to good dialogue. Say at least two things with one line of dialogue. So now it's your turn. I want you to take two characters from your story world. One wants something from the other. Money, love, a command, whatever it is. I want you to write a one-paragraph monologue for one character in which it becomes clear what they want without them ever actually stating it. If they're flirting, they can't say, how about you come up to my apartment? If they're intimidating, they can't say, if you don't tell me, I'll kill you. Think about all the ways that they can get what they want by subtextual commentary. As one final bit for this exercise, given that this is about narrative universe design, I want you to have this character share at least one bit of history about themselves, the story world, the plot, the lie, the fun, or anything else. Make it elegant, and make sure it supports your character's dialogue. If you can do at least two things, you'll be detailing what your character is after and highlighting the world. You'll have built a quality bit of dialogue. Next up, we have methodology, or the way that people speak. Sometimes this means literal accents. Your mother was a hamster, and your father smelt of elderberries! Or idioms. You despise me, don't you? Hell, if I gave you any thought, I probably would. Or affectations. Hey, waka waka! Ah, waka waka waka! But the sentiment is the same. You should be able to tell who says a line of conversation without it being written down next to that piece of dialogue. There are two broad reasons for this. It automatically creates differentiation for characters, which highlights their position in a story world, based on age, gender, status, or whatever else. It creates conflict. If everybody sounds the same, it means they have the same background, which means that they're going to agree on most things. This is a good goal, but let's be more realistic. Let's get mechanical. If your characters speak in different ways, it creates a shortcut to characterization. Let's take a great exchange from a great movie, The Silence of the Lambs. Your anagrams are showing, Doctor. Lewis Friend. Iron Sulfide, also known as, as Fool's Gold. Oh, Clarice, your problem is you need to get more fun out of life. Clarice Starling is a rookie FBI agent who is on the hunt for a serial killer, Buffalo Bill, so named because he skins his victims. She is sitting opposite Hannibal Lecter, a murderous psychopath who is incarcerated due to his propensity to eat his victims. Clarice has hit a dead end and needs Hannibal's help. 
He's a brilliant psychologist, after all, and he can help Clarice understand the background of Buffalo Bill in hopes of catching him. You were telling me the truth back in Baltimore, sir. Please continue now. Well, I've read the case files, have you? Everything you need to find him is right there in those pages. Hannibal won't help for free, however. Clarice will have to share her history with him so he can analyze her, subtly allowing him to manipulate her in a way that will achieve his own ends, which are hidden for the time being. Doctor, we don't have any more time for any of this now. But we don't reckon time the same way, do we, Clarice? This is all the time you'll ever have. Later, now please listen to me. We've only got five... No, I will listen now. The entire exchange is brilliant in a dramatic fashion, and it also highlights the story world. We get Clarice's history, which is symbolized in the imagery of screaming lambs. And one morning I just ran away. Not just, Clarice. What set you off? You started at what time? Early, still dark. Then something woke you, didn't it? Was it a dream? What was it? I heard a strange noise. What was it? Screaming. What's important for our purpose is the methodology by which Clarice and Hannibal speak. The dual performances by Jodie Foster and Anthony Hopkins elevate the dialogue, assuredly, but the foundation is there, right in the way they speak. Clarice is young, unsure of herself, and in over her head against a sociopathic genius that she knows is manipulating her. Her accent is light but noticeable, as is her trepidation as she realizes she's a minnow swimming with a shark. They were slaughtering the spring lambs? They were screaming. And you ran away? No. First I tried to free them. I, I opened the gate to their pen, but they wouldn't run. They just stood there, confused. They wouldn't run. Hannibal Lecter, on the other hand, is confident. He uses proper language. He's direct. He never stutters. Occasionally he's condescending or annoyed when Clarice makes a mistake. What does he do, this man you see? He kills women. No, that is incidental. But he also comes across as impressed with Clarice. He likes her for her lack of pretension, her youthful determination, and her earnestness even when he tries to get a rise out of her. Do you think if you save poor Catherine, you could make them stop, don't you? You think if Catherine lives, you won't wake up in the dark ever again to that awful screaming of the lambs? I don't know. There's a lot of information that is shared in this scene, as it's critical to the development of the film's plot and story world, but it's also a masterclass in the how of a character's speech. Clarice and Hannibal are complete opposites, creating just as much unspoken conflict as spoken conflict. Let's highlight this with an exercise for you. I want you to write another scene featuring the same two characters you wrote about before. It should be in another location or else some time has passed, because I want you to detail the outcome of that scene. Did your one character manage to woo the other, or were they spurned? Did one intimidate the other, or were they themselves intimidated? Whatever the outcome, I want you to write a one-page long scene of dialogue between the two, in which you do not state the outcome outright, but, through their dialogue, make it clear what that outcome was. If one character successfully seduced the other, you may have them talking about the quality of the sheets upon which they are now laying. If your character failed to intimidate the other and was in turn intimidated, you might have that first character complaining about a black eye. Whatever and however, I want you to flip the script. Now that second person wants something from the first character, something that is not easily given. 
This will inform conflict, maybe in the form of a quid pro quo, or maybe because there is a bit of humility. You beat me up when I needed help, so why should I help you now? Regardless of what you come up with, the dialogue should build at least one element of your story world through history, characterization, or plot, and it should highlight the differences between your character's speech. You already have a grounding in one of them due to your monologue. Now work on the other character. Write down at least three differences in the personalities of these characters and showcase at least one per exchange of dialogue. Is one more passive-aggressive and the other more assertive? Is one more cultured and the other less refined? Is one more book-smart and the other more streetwise? Whatever the difference, don't hide them. They will help your characters stand out in your audience's mind. Once you're done with that, we'll get to the last bit of good dialogue, dramatic irony. This is when an audience knows more about a situation than the characters in that situation. We know that there's a killer in the house, but the characters are arguing about what toppings to put on their pizza. We know the real identity of the masked hero on the rooftop, but the cop who has her gun drawn doesn't know that the figure is, in fact, her sister. We know that one of these two figures is going to kill the other one, but for now, the two are allies. Why do I get the feeling you're going to be the death of me? Don't say that, Master. You're the closest thing I have to a father. Then why don't you listen to me? I am trying. Too much dramatic irony can cause audiences to roll their eyes at the overly cute or witty dialogue, but a little bit will make your audience complicit. It builds tension, too. How is this going to play out? The situation isn't resolved yet. Let's take a scene from the animated classic Mulan. Or rather, let's take a song. You're the saddest bunch I ever met But you can bet before we're through Mr. I'll make a man out of you The plot of Mulan focuses on our eponymous hero who must dress up as a man in order to take the place of her aging father when the Emperor sends out for an army of conscripts. Most of the film functions on this dramatic irony. We are aware that Mulan is female, but her leader and fellow soldiers know her as Ping, a seemingly clumsy, confused young man. Why is she clumsy and confused? Because she's under constant threat of exposure. Not only does she have to train to be a soldier, she must make sure her secret stays safe. This guy's got him scared to death! Hope he doesn't see right through me! This creates natural tension and escalation, which is familiar to anybody who reads superhero comics. Why is Miles Morales always late? Why does Diana Prince have such an amazing knowledge of ancient Greece? Why does Bruce Banner try his hardest to stay even-keeled? Pursued by an investigative reporter. Mr. McGee, don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. The song for Mulan goes even further. It shows the growth of the characters in a training montage, not the least of which is Mulan Ping, who solves a puzzle set by her commander, but the lyrics also highlight the themes of the film. Are there inherent qualities that divide masculinity and femininity? Did they send me daughters? I asked for sons. What can be changed about our personhood and what cannot? You're suited for the rage of war. So pack up, go home, you're through. How could I make a man out of you? What does it mean to be a man? It's a great film for those who want to understand how dramatic irony can play out over the course of an entire feature. But let's focus on your work. I want you to write one more scene between the two characters you've detailed above. 
This time, it can be about whatever you want. But before you get down to writing their dialogue or detailing their needs, I want you to write one sentence about one event. Something has happened in your story since the last scene. The audience will know it, but at least one of your characters will not, if not both. How can you play up the drama, comedy, or mystery in your scene to highlight this lack of awareness? It should come across in the dialogue. How does the dialogue highlight what one character knows and the other doesn't, or else what both of them don't know? This doesn't have to be big. A great moment in Batman the Animated Series occurs when a thug walks in on Batman investigating a crime. Somebody in here? Batman stands up, glaring at the thug, who just exits. He's questioned by his fellow. Something wrong? Uh, nope. Giving us a moment of levity. This is the smartest goon in the Batman universe. If he'd said anything about Batman, things wouldn't have gone so well. The audience knows this, but his fellow criminal does not. Think about this for your own scene. It should have your characters wanting something from each other or the world. But keep the lessons you learned above about their style of speech and the subtext. What are they getting at? What does the audience know that they don't? How does this inform the audience a bit more about your story world? And how does it add to the stakes, tension, humor, or conflict of the scene? Once you have that, you'll have crafted three scenes in your story universe. One will highlight the story world and subtext. Another will detail conflict and speech methodology. Your last will add a healthy dose of dramatic irony. Congrats! You've not only built three intriguing scenes, but you've begun your journey to better dialogue. Not every line you write is going to be Pulitzer-worthy, but if you think through the what, how, and why of your character's dialogue, you'll have a solid foundation for almost anything that you write. That's enough for this episode, however. Feel free to rework those scenes into your overall structure, or build out new ones as you continue to compose. Keep up with the writing, and keep on listening. You can find more episodes of this podcast at babsw.buzzsprout.com, on steelfellapack.com, or by subscribing on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, or any other podcatcher. I'll be back next time with more pragmatic tools that will help you continue to build out your story universe. Make them grand, make them elegant, make them wondrous, but above all else, make them yours. Building a Better Story World is written, produced, recorded, and sound engineered by Steel Tyler Filipek. The theme song, Asia, is by Ilya Marfin via icons8.com. All narrative clips are used under the Fair Use Doctrine, as defined by Title 17 of the United States Code, subsection 107, in that they are used for nonprofit educational work for the purpose of analysis, have been transformed from their initial records by audio engineering for podcasting, and are not substantive of the entire work or function as a direct market substitute. Audio effects are provided by freesound.org under the Creative Commons license. If you feel that this production has unfairly used a piece of audio to which you own the rights, please contact helmstarmedia at gmail.com.